As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to the Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I am Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. Last week, we got together with a bunch of our other colleagues and a lot of the college football world in Scottsdale, Arizona. Stu, before we get into some of this stuff, right after we had taped the last episode, and actually while we were in Scottsdale, you were the one who, in fact, to inform me of this because you had sent me a tweet from the Sports Business Journal that the place you and I first met, ESPN Magazine, is going to be no more. They're going to cease publishing. I don't know. I got a little sentimental about that. Did you? Well, I mean, I would imagine you would have a lot more reason to get sentimental. I was there for, I believe, eight weeks in the summer uh, after I graduated from college. But you, how many years were you in that building? On and off for probably about 10 years. Now, I didn't live in New York that whole stretch. I moved out to L.A. shortly after I became a senior writer. So I was probably there for, I don't know, five years. And also, I would just say that long after I was gone, you were constantly telling me stories about the place and about what you guys were up to. And I just remember thinking that it was a very, like the camaraderie in that office was really strong. You guys were constantly doing playing basketball games and just socializing yeah i think we also you know it's funny i got to know the si culture a little bit through uh my buddy jeff chadia who was a writer there around the same time i was at the magazine and we became friends and i remember i went to some of his parties but i remember going to his going away party it was at some bar like right you know like a block from the si office and you know because i think i was the new new person or i was the espn mag person so a lot of people chatted me up I just remember, everybody was nice, but it was just very different. Where at ESPN Magazine, you, we had a lot of drama, but you had a lot of big, big personality people. And so it was it was a fun, interesting, at times maddening place to work. But you're right. I mean, we John Skipper, who later on ran ESPN, he was the guy who basically launched the magazine. And he would have – we would play basketball a couple of times a week at Chelsea Piers. One of my one of my clear memories was I used to guard him at times and him. It was like a three on two fast break and him running him on the trail and just basically just going down in a heap screaming in his distinctive Carolina accent. 
who kicked me, who kicked me. And it turned out his Achilles had exploded. And when the boss goes down like that, everybody else is like running from the hills <laughs> to make sure they're not the one who gets accused of it. So, but it was fun. You know, like it was, a, it was a fun place to be. I mean, I think I learned a ton about how to be a reporter and how to, how to uh, come up with story ideas from my time in that office. So it is, it is bittersweet, you know, for to see it. I mean, I'm not surprised that it that it eventually went under. I think it was it had been trending for that for a fairly long time. But I do remember you, you know, at the time I wasn't writing. I had just transitioned down there from ESPN.com, and I think you know, I I think I remembered you, they gave you a uh, one of the top 25 preview teams to do. I, I don't know how many words it was, probably 300 words or something. But I I definitely remember that part of it. Yeah, I think the expectations of the interns were very low because, yeah, it was a Wisconsin football preview. Like you said, it was maybe 300 words. Call the school, line up an interview with Barry Alvarez. And it was, a, it was a, but, but it was kind of treated as if they were giving me, like, the keys to the castle. Like, oh, my gosh, I don't know if the intern can be able to pull this off. So uh, it's kind of fun to look back, though, at who was there at the time. And, you know, it's now 20 years later. And, you know, Chad Millman was a... I mean, was he? He was a reporter, right? Like he was. Uh... No, he was a. He was a. Uh, he was an associate editor on the on the NFL department. Um, well, he would eventually go on to run ESPN.com. Uh, one of my fellow interns, believe it or not, was Connor Shell, who is now very, very high up at ESPN. You know, uh, spearheaded Thirty for Thirty with Bill Simmons, and now I don't know his exact title, but he's very high up in the in the company. And I knew him when he was an intern, so. You know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot like that. I mean, people have gone on to have full careers, and it was kind of a young staff. It was, it seemed like everybody was in their 20s, maybe early 30s, and you know, very, um, you know, it felt like you were doing something very innovative. I mean, SI had been the only sports magazine really for so long. There was, there was Sport Magazine, and there was Inside Sport, but I don't know that those ever reached kind of mass audiences. So it was this, hey, we're taking on SI, and uh, and we're going to do it very differently. They were. To their credit, figured out long before SI did that in the age of the internet, there's no reason to put out a magazine on Wednesday or Thursday that recaps what happened on Saturday and Sunday. You know, they were all forward spinning. So, uh, you know, I always remember that fondly in part, large part because it was my first professional experience like that. Uh, first time living in New York, first time covering sports nationally, but it was also just a really good crew of people. Yeah. Speaking of people who worked there, this is ESPN magazine existed in a previous arc incarnation as total sports magazine. And it was more of a, just did yearbooks or did preview got issues. But one of their, their, their interns before you also has risen up pretty far and is a, in the, especially in the college football world. And that was Lee fitting who, who he, I don't think he's still – he oversees college game day, but I think he oversees uh, Monday Night Football now as well. But he was an intern there, I think, even before you were. You know, one, one just you know, all these thoughts come into your head. I wasn't really rooted in college football when the college football associate editor, who's a friend of mine, John Roach, he was actually the first person to leave the magazine. He went off to become Sport Magazine's editor-in-chief, and eventually that thing died. But – he left and I remember I applied for his job and it was a on title. It was a lateral move. But when I sat in with Chris Raymond, who was the senior editor over college, both college football and college basketball, I had a bunch, I brought like, I don't know, 16 or 18 story ideas 
to try to help sell myself to the department. And ultimately he picked somebody else who shall be na- remain nameless because he works with us now, but it was an S- also an SI person. And, and so I was kind of, I'm pretty devastated. And he said, well, listen, you pitched me all these story ideas. You got them. I like these ideas. Why don't you go try to do some of them? And the first idea he, uh, you know, was to, I had heard that Frank Beamer hosts all these coaches from around the country to want to learn about kick blocking. And I went there and I, you know, was, I was there for a couple of days and it was fascinating because I was, I don't say it was probably my first, it was definitely my first fly on the wall reporting experience. And I'm grateful for Virginia Tech because they rolled out the red carpet. I mean, I don't know how old I was. I was probably 28 years old. And the first source I developed was Mark Snyder, who was then the defensive ends coach, who I think handled some one of the special teams groups at, at Minnesota. And I think we went out drinking one night or whatever. It's just kind of like you kind of learned if you keep your eyes open, you kind of learn, learn how to do the job or what you think works on, on the job. And so that was I'm I was grateful for a lot of people there that I honestly hadn't really thought of in that context. And probably until maybe a day or so after this thing kind of went under. But um, so I'm glad that they uh, I'm glad they gave you a chance and I'm glad they gave me a chance. And I'm glad to hear that they're not laying off the whole staff. Like those people will be absorbed into ESPN. And obviously they're going to continue to do long form stories that run on ESPN.com. So it's not like the content itself will be going away, just the, the print magazine. But honestly, that's the trend across all of journalism. You know, it's just putting out print publications is not a profitable endeavor anymore. So unfortunately, I think we're going to see a lot of that over the next decade or so so we were in phoenix and you know it's a lot of i mean it's it's most of the major conferences not the acc not the sec but the others hold meetings there uh and then you got a lot of people who come in who don't have an actual business reason to be there but the fiesta bowl hosts them and they get to play golf and eat fancy dinners and it's it's frankly a bit of a boondoggle Uh, but it's good for us to have all those people in one place you may have some specific nuggets to relay from certain people you talk to, but I will say that in general, it seemed like the only topic people were talk coaches wanted to talk about in at least during business hours is transfer waivers. They're they're just so furious with the trend of the NCAA granting anybody who wants one a waiver to play right away. Not, well, there's there's one caveat to that. They're furious unless they think they can get a player right, right, right. who's going to be eligible. Then it's like all of a sudden they kind of cool their jets a little bit. So. Well, they're frustrated with the inconsistencies. They're frustrated with, you know, as one coach said to me, that, that you can just lie. You know, you can just make up any reason you want on those forms. And if you can convince them that, you know, this is uh, health and well-being or, you know, the, the kind of nebulous wording on that, it's granted. So... Pat Fitzgerald, Northwestern coach Pat Fitzgerald, uh, who's, I think, is he the head of the AFCA right now? Or he was a recent head of the AFCA? Yeah, yeah. And Todd Berry, their executive director, are pushing this proposal where, okay, you want to transfer uh, before you've graduated? That's fine. You're going to sit out a year no matter what. But once you get your degree, you'll get that year on the back end. And they all think it's, you know, this total common sense. It's a win-win for everybody. Why not do that? And I felt bad because I didn't want to say this to anybody, but... That's a losing battle. You know, that ship has sailed. The, the, the NCAA has reached this point for a reason. Clearly, there's a... I think that coaches have, for a long time, benefited from the fact that most NCAA policies were set up with the coach as the central person in mind. That they're, 
you know, this is what the coach wants or this is what will benefit the coach. And it's now switching to what's best for the athlete. And the public opinion is very much on their side. Uh, maybe they, I think that a lot of the public is also confused and frustrated about what exactly does or does not get you in a, a waiver. But I don't think that the public would support that rule that universally, I mean, you'd basically be going back to the way it was where everybody sits out a year. So I, I don't know. I hate to break it to them, but I don't think that, and to, and to be clear, this is just a proposal. It hasn't even been. I a, don't even know if it's a, a technically a proposal yet. Well, it hasn't even, they need, yeah, a, the way it works it, is all they can do, all the coaches association can do is they can come up with something like that, but then they need a conference to sponsor it and put it through the NCA legislative process, and they've yet to find somebody that wants to do that. Here's uh, here's one thing I, I would I agree with pretty much everything you said, other than one thing. The the one of the problems with this is, and even with the Tate Martell case, nobody really knows for sure, other than the people directly involved, what exactly was in that. So we're all kind of jumping to conclusions. I mean, I, I forgot I I had seen on the AJC site or a subsite of it. You know, there was a story on the attorney who's really Tom Morris, who's in the middle of a lot of these cases. And he's talked about Justin Fields case and alluded to people really don't know the specifics of that at all either. So I think, you know, like I just knowing what I know a little bit, I kind of try to pump the brakes on, on reading too much into everything. Cause, cause one thing that I, I heard, and you're right, this was, this was a discussion that came up even when you weren't trying to initiate it was about transfers. And I remember talking to a, a coach in the mountain West who I saw and he was saying, you know, it's like, he was the first person to say, and then a couple other people I heard say it in, independently is the people who are on Twitter, who are convinced that, Oh, so-and-so's transferred. That means, yeah, they're going to put a waiver in. They're just, you know, the NCA is going in this direction. They're all going to get green lit. Like they don't see it that way. They don't think it's that it's not a slam dunk. They're not buying that. I think that's, I think people are a little further over their skis at this point, just because I think they looked at Justin Fields and Tate Martell's case, even the ones who were going, well, if you lawyer up, you're definitely getting in. I mean, the people I've talked to weren't so sure it was that, that, that much of a slam dunk. And if you go into it that way, you're going to end up, you probably end up being disappointed. Well, that uh, AJC story you mentioned, that was a kind of the first big profile scene of Thomas Mars, the, lawyer who has kind of become the go-to for these waiver cases ever since he got Shea Patterson eligible. I mean, he's yet to have one not get it. He's taken on like 100 cases, and not just football, obviously, 100 mm -hmm. cases of NCAA athletes, and he's yet to have one denied. So that's where the feeling is that, you know. Now, I did see that Texas has not even put in the waiver yet for Brew McCoy. You know, there's been this feeling that, well, given the climate, right, Cliff Kingsbury bolted on USC... He, Cliff Kingsbury wasn't there for very no, long. No, 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 but I know, but I mean, there's been this feeling that that it's an automatic, and I don't think Texas is approaching it that way because they've yet to actually put in the waiver. Their weight, they've, uh, according to, I believe it was Brian Davis reported this, they've been studying other, you know, ones that have been approved and trying to figure out, like, the best way to approach it. So they're not, well, they well, don't the consider it a formality. One of the best ways for them to approach it would be Ohio State, from everything I've heard, was very supportive of Tate Martell's case. If USC is not supportive of the, how Brew McCoy's situation was handled or if they think there was some tampering going on behind the scenes, that, I think, would, would make it a little, a little more challenging or an uphill climb to get that. Right. So I will say this, though. Now, and again, again, there's all this confusion. They don't have to explain anything. 
So if suddenly they start reining it back in, which is a possibility, and kids start getting their waivers denied, well, now it's going to be, well, how come that guy got in and I didn't? It's a mess, to say the least. But in terms of rolling it back entirely, I don't, I don't see that happening at this point. What else? What are some other takeaways from your – you were there for longer than yeah. I was. You were there for, what, four or five days? Well, let me ask you, you you've fancied yourself as, as the playoff BCS guru guy. You know, our friend Dennis Dodd had reported on – are, are we clo- Where are we with talk of playoff expansion? What do you read the tea leaves or read the read the chatter and tell us what you what you, you what your observation is? From I this? don't think much has changed since December when you saw Jim Delaney and Bob Bowlesby and uh, Barry Alvarez and Gordon Gee uh, go on the record in the Colourback stories that they want to talk about this and they still want to talk about it. But there's a pretty div- there's a divide in that room. Greg Sankey wants nothing to do with it. Larry Scott, despite maybe what some of his own fans want, wants nothing to do with it. And so what the college football playoff has done is try to trot out the company line, whether it's Bill Hancock, whether it's Greg Sankey. You know, whenever reporters ask them about this, they tell you we're fine with the way it is. But there are definitely people, uh, powerful people in the room that aren't fine with the way it is. What I am starting to realize is it's not going to be you know, any sentiment coming out of December that they that there was so much uproar, so much angst that they were going to blow up the contract and, and do it in the next year or two. Yeah, that, that doesn't seem like it's going to be the case. I, I don't think anything is imminent, but I do think that if you think that it's dead, uh-uh, they're going to continue to want to talk about it behind the scenes and start laying the foundation for, for whenever this, they may be, whenever some of the other parties may be ready for it. I mean, how many years in a row does the Pac-12 have to miss the playoff before Larry Scott says, well, maybe it would be in our best interest to expand the field, you know? I think much like with the BCS, where each year there was more dissatisfaction, I mean, we're not anywhere near the level of angst that we got with the BCS, but as more dissatisfaction adds up, you know, maybe they go to eight teams in four years or six years or somewhere, or maybe they wait for the rest of the contract to play out, but I think a lot of people feel like it's inevitable, so why wouldn't we want to start hashing this out now? Uh, let me put you on the spot. Since this is a, a big schmooze fest for three or four days, who are the two or three coaches or people that you most like to engage with or see or are impressed by in that yeah, setting? I had a real, Well, forget coaches. I had a really good conversation with your new Fox Sports colleague, Reggie Bush, who I hadn't talked to since he was a player and I covered him. He's really fired up for this new Fox pregame show with Liner and Brady Quinn and Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer was not there, by the way. And uh, it, it was it was cool to talk to him. By the way, I golf with Reggie. He's been playing for like five or six years. And no exaggeration, he's a five handicap. That's pretty impressive. So Well, I, he is a bit of an athlete, uh, as I recall. Yeah. No. Did, that's... You, did you think, like, if he needed to suit up tomorrow... Uh, some NFL team like was desperate for running back and needed that he could do it. It's one thing to be in, you know, like he's friggin' ripped. You know, he's probably got like three percent body fat or whatever. It's one thing to be that shredded. It's another thing to take the pounding of right. of being, you know, being an NFL running back. I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, he's definitely fit. I just don't know. I mean, again, I, I remember I go, went back to uh, 
this is one, this is my last ESPN magazine story. I promise for this podcast. But Alan Grant, who you remember, who was who worked at the magazine as a writer, he uh, once led the nation in kick returning or punt returning for Stanford. Played in the NFL for four or five years, and he'd been, he'd been retired for a few years. The the magazine editors wanted him to go through tryouts for I forgot what league was starting. And he was like, no effing way. He goes, I haven't played in like five years. And he was still in like pretty amazing shape if you just like saw him walking around. But he was in his mid 30s and he was like, I don't think you guys understand what it takes to actually to play and be competitive at that level. Even if this wasn't the NFL, it was like, I want to say it was like a, a high minor league football. And it just like it takes a while to get into that kind of shape or whatever. So. I don't know. I wouldn't put it past Reggie if he got the ball in his hands to be able to run away from people. I just have no idea, you know, how he would hold up to, to that kind of pounding. Well, okay. Well, you keep asking me questions. Come on, you're the gadfly. You know everybody in the room. You tell us what's the what's the scoop from there. I can't tell you what the scoop is. The scoop, if I if I tell you what the scoop is, then I have to write what the scoop is. So right now, when those stories come out, they'll come out. I think I did get one great story that I don't think I would have. Like it was like the kind of thing you 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 kind of ask, hey, whatever happened to guy uh, to a football coach, and then all of a sudden the story gets better and better. You're like, okay, I'm going to have to write that at some point this off season. So I had a little of that. And, you know, it's good. It's just like different different guys are. You know, you see different personalities in those settings. You know, like I mean, I'm a huge. Uh, every time I'm, I talk to Matt Campbell from Iowa State, I am more impressed by him. You know, I just think he's just he's all about the substance of football and you know some other guys are a lot of fun to talk to because of you know they're good storytellers or whatnot and it's in the margins of how it is but you know he's one of those guys that that kind of really uh really resonates with me when you come away going man i you know it's almost like you'd like to tape record him on all this stuff because it's like very interesting so i got to um, meet new west virginia coach neil brown for the first time in really? Fact, You've never met him before I, or crossed paths with him? No, because when would I have been at Troy? Yeah, the, that's true. I mean, what was interesting, we went to like a little reception the Big 12 was having, and you look around, it's like, man, there's not the, the faces of the coaches in this conference have changed quite a bit since last year, right? There's no Bill Snyder, obviously. There's uh, Matt Wells is there for Texas Tech. Your old, your old nemesis, Les Miles, is there. He was floating around. Jeff Long was talking to everybody. Jeff Long, by the way, you may have read Andy Staples' story, was floating out there the idea, and I don't know if this will gain any traction, that for programs like his that are in dire straits when the coach takes over, can they... He's not suggesting that... that you know, he's, suggesting a two, he's suggesting, which is... This is actually not new. Les Miles had brought this up at the AFCA meetings in January. So it's a, instead of the one-year 25 initials, He's suggesting it be grouped into a two-year window so you could really try to balance out your roster by either front-loading it if you're, if you're empty, which you know I think this all started under Charlie Weiss, and that program has been off-balance roster-wise ever since, and David Beatty really could never get out from under the Charlie Weiss issues. Yeah, so he's suggesting a rolling two-year average of 25. So if you wanted to, you could sign... 35 when you first get there and then only 15 the next year. I don't think that's going to take off. I mean, it does make sense for a program that's in that situation that's underwater. But, like, that's in the best interest of Kansas. I don't know if that's in the best interest of Ohio State, you know, or like any number of other programs that are on more stable ground. 
Yeah, and I think it's like anything. I think you got to be leery of coaches are going to exploit that in certain ways. And I don't know. It just, it, I think it, it, it would have some unintended consequences or potentially unintended consequences go on the other side of it too. Back to the podcast in a second. But Bruce, it's been about a month, maybe a little bit more since Freefly came into our lives. And I take it you're still loving all those comfortable clothes? Yes, do I. It's no exaggeration. The especially the underwear and the shorts that we got from Freefly, the most comfortable I own. So I was fired up to see that they are adding advertising with us again, and I strongly encourage our listeners to get on board. Here's the deal: Freefly is designed for outdoorsmen or outdoors women who won't settle for uncomfortable clothing. What's the key? Butter soft bamboo comfort designed from top to bottom, designed for those who work hard, play hard, and podcast hard. And they <laughs> demand the same from their clothing. Uh, I'm not exaggerating. These are ultra comfortable. It's just very natural. One other big benefit of this, and since we're both in California and I'm especially out in the sun, Free Flies Bamboo has natural UPF sun production to keep you cool on and off the water. So it is very, very user friendly. So here's the deal. Stop being uncomfortable. Try out Free Flies Bamboo Clothing. And, you know, Mother's and Father's Day, right around the corner, you can gear up for mom and dad, and here's how you do it. Get 20% off when you visit FreeFlyApparel.com and use promo code AUDIBLE. That's FreeFlyApparel.com, promo code AUDIBLE. Anything else, or do you want to jump into the mailbag since we haven't really gotten into it in a big way in a while? Let's jump into the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And Bruce, our first question, it came with kind of a depressing subject line. Now, once you actually open the email, yeah, it's a, it's a reasonable uh, conversation for us to have. But Jason Grant from Dallas, Texas, the subject of his email was, why should I care about college football anymore? Guys, I've listened to all your podcasts and many others for years. But why should I continue caring about your podcast or college football as a whole when, by my estimation, there are only 15 schools that can win the college football playoff and seven maybes? The teams are Alabama, Auburn, Texas A&M, LSU, Georgia, Florida, Clemson, Florida State, Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Texas, Oklahoma, USC, and Washington. Those are his 15 schools that can win the playoff and his seven maybes are Tennessee, Miami, Virginia Tech, Wisconsin, Notre Dame, UCLA, and the Arizona schools. Um, wow. Well, well, the Arizona food. Yeah. It's, the the U of the A folks there, are going like, to be like kind of like, whoa, we have, we have where, a hard time getting get the Rose Bowl. Yeah. So, for, by the way, in this list, and I know he didn't mention Oregon. Oregon came within a field goal of winning a national title. So I actually think he has too many teams in that, teams that can win the college football playoff column. Or, or I guess you're talking about, throw you're talking about this year or in the next two years, or you're just talking about just the way the, the way the sport is built. I disagree with that. Okay. I disagree with that. So you're saying of these 22 teams, he has too many, or of the 15, he has too many? Both. I mean, you can take, right now, you can take, and we've talked about this at length, you can take Wisconsin off of the maybes, you can take the Arizona schools off the maybes, I think you could probably take Virginia Tech off the maybes. We've talked about Would you take Tennessee off the maybes? No, because Tennessee does have the ability to sign uh, with, you know, they've done it actually recently, they have the ability to sign those top five to ten recruiting classes that you need to win a national title. In terms of that top list... 
Would you take Notre Dame off that list because they have they have the ability to sign those players? No, I wouldn't take Notre Dame off the maybes. Well, you wouldn't take. Would you take Miami off the maybes? The one that stands out to me is Michigan. Do we really think in this day and age Michigan can win the college football playoff? And I'm Absolutely. not even talking about Harbaugh. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Explain. They can get any of those players you're talking about. Rashawn Gary was the number one player in the country. He's from New Jersey. It's not like he's from from Detroit. He went there. They have they've consistently gotten big big time players. They have great history. They have a great education that they can offer. They are in a big big footprint of players. It's not necessarily like they're in South Florida, but there's still a, lot, a decent number of players. They have a great game day atmosphere. Absolutely, they have a chance. Okay, I'll I'll accept that. I'll I'll take it back. I'll keep them on the list, and then I would just say, let me so let me. He's phrasing, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, he's no, phrasing this as if it's a, it's some sort of like recent development. I would say in the entire history of college football, there are probably only this list of schools maybe that could win a national title. You know, you mentioned Oregon, who probably should be in the maybes. Uh, you know, they've come on the scene, obviously. Before the 80s, you wouldn't necessarily have had the Florida schools on this list. But for the most part, these are the here's, same schools that have always been in that limited But that's not true. Here's, here's why I think you can't limit it to, to this. Because if you were to look back, uh, there's one school on there that right now is running at a level that actually even Alabama isn't. And that's Clemson. They hire a guy named Dabo Sweeney, who nobody thought was going to do anything with the job. Right? Nobody thought that other than... Then the AD hired him and hopefully his family, right? But before that, before he got the job, you know how many top 10 teams that Clemson had had in the, going, going back to the 90s? Zero. Yep. They had one team that finished inside the top 20 in the previous decade. One. Clemson right? is and, the, the closest thing we have right now to a, to a Cinderella. I don't know. Cinderella is not the right term. But, but to crashing the party. But – they did win a national title in 1981. It wasn't like they well, came so out of you know absolutely Georgia, nowhere. Okay, well, Georgia Tech won a national title even more recently. They're in an area with even more players. Mm-hmm. Why would you, you know, ergo, I mean, look, why would you not put Georgia Tech on the list? Then? I would not put Georgia Tech on the list because Georgia Tech won their national title in a previous uh, version of this sport where you could go to the Citrus Bowl and beat where I can't remember who they beat. So did Clemson though. And and you know, and, and get rewarded for it by the pollsters. I mean BYU won a national title. Should they be on this list? I don't know if BYU should be on this list. Minnesota has B- won a national title. Should they be on this list? I know, but I mean you you're the same person who just said Clemson had won a previous national title. They did it way before Georgia Tech did. That's my point of it. So let's answer his question. Why should he care about college football? Well no 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 no. Let let's have Stu defend what you just said something that was like I don't. I don't think it added up. You like, if Clemson's on this list, and I'm saying Clemson definitely belongs on this list. The point is, you know, all the stars have aligned very nicely for Clemson. But if you were to look on paper, like I said, they went the previous decade before this guy. Nobody thought was going to do well as the head coach, and they had, had one season where they barely cracked in the top twenty, and all of a sudden now they're on top of the college football world. They have good players around them, no doubt, and they have a you know great game day environment. But it's not like if you look at what Georgia Tech has. I mean, Georgia Tech is in the middle of a an extremely fertile recruiting area. They've won a national title. They have a great you know degree they can offer kids. They're in the same conference, by the way. It's not like they're in the SEC where it's 
you know, yeah, Clemson's in there, but it's not like there's like seven other schools that are like Alabama in terms of resources. So, so I love Jeff Collins, but it sounds like you're suggesting that Georgia Tech, if the stars line right, could be the next Clemson. Right now, I'm here saying this. Jeff Collins, if you don't win a national title in four years, you <laughs> failed miserably. No. I want to. I want it out there for on the record that Bruce Feldman is predicting that Georgia Tech was going to win another national title sometime soon. No, no, no. I'm not. I, but, but I just think that this is the what Jason, what Jason is saying here is, I, I think if you'd say okay within the next two years, and obviously Florida State's on this list. I don't think Willie Tigers winning a national title in the next two years. But within the next two years, these schools can can win a national title. I think, or within the next three years. But beyond that, I don't think if you'd say five or six years from now, if you get the right head coach in the right circumstances, I think there's a lot more schools that can win a national title than you think. Okay, give us some examples of schools that he did not mention that you think, we'll, we'll, we'll say in the next 10, I'll give you the next 10 years. What's a school that's not on this list that could win the national title? conceivably i'm not saying they will conceivably mm -hmm. i would put georgia tech on that list okay i don't think it's out of, i don't think it's out of the realm of possibility georgia tech could win a national title i don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that oregon could win a national title well we both agree he should have had oregon on there in the first place i don't think it's out of the realm of possibility okay i'll give you a i'll give you a school uh, no, that fits a similar profile to the ones you just mentioned you tell me well, if you think it's possible for them okay okay virginia I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I think the school, I, the school I was going to give you that I think is not out of the realm of possibility that could win a national title, and it, it goes at your it goes at your Wisconsin one, and that's Nebraska. Yeah, and it's pretty telling that he didn't have Nebraska on this list anywhere. I think Nebraska. It's not out of the realm of possibility Nebraska could win a national title. Okay, I'm going to disagree. I do think they're going to be get very good under Scott Frost, but I don't think they're ever going to reach that point of having the kind of recruiting classes that Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. Why uh, do you signed. think, why are you more convinced that, and this is a good discussion, right, I think. Why are you more convinced that Tennessee can do it and Nebraska can't? Because they, they've done it. Well, Nebraska did it like a year before. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not talking about the 90s. Butch Jones himself recruited, mm -hmm. I believe, top five, but at least top ten, Recruiting mm -hmm. classes. They're in the part of the country where you can do that. It's very hard to do that at Nebraska. They're also they're also competing with Georgia, Clemson, Alabama, LSU in that part of, uh, you know, it's not to say they're in it. Yes, they're in a more t rich area, but they're also in a hotbed where there's like a hive of people swarming. I'll say this. One of the best young quarterbacks, one of the best young players in college football was committed to Tennessee, and he ended up going to play for Scott Frost instead of the head coach there. Right. That's Adrian Martinez. So they have won recruiting battles. Uh, Wando Robinson was a guy a lot of people wanted. He ended up going to Nebraska. So, you again, know, we're again. not talking about in the next few years. I mean, at some point, I hate to break this to Alabama fans, but at some point, the Alabama dynasty will go away. Whether Saban retires or it goes, you know, they will not be in the position they are right now forever. And so, you know, Tennessee right now is on the wrong side of that rivalry. But there will come a time when Alabama's moment in the sun will be over and somebody else, you know, maybe it's going to be Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. Maybe it's going to be LSU. Somebody else is going to step up and take their place. And Tennessee, in theory, in theory, I don't know if Jeremy Pruitt's the right guy, 
has the 100,000-seat stadium and is in the right part of the country to do that. Okay, so we're going to move on after you've just declared Alabama. But we haven't actually answered his question. Uh, Why Why should he continue to care about college football? Because college football is extremely exciting. I know that, I think one unfortunate thing about the playoff is that it's so overshadowed all the rest of the sport that, you know, to me, the, 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 some of the best things that happen on Saturdays in the fall have absolutely nothing to do with the playoff. Crazy ending in a noon ACC game between two teams that you weren't necessarily expecting to watch that game. Or, you know, some play you've never seen before. Think about the Florida State-Georgia Tech game a few years ago, that crazy ending. The Miami-Duke. Uh, think about these look, games had about, nothing to do with the playoff. Think about Texas A and M LSU seven overtimes. Yeah. Think right. about the the TCU bowl game as as yeah. uh, you know you wouldn't get that necessarily in the NFL. You can't get stuff like that because there's a there's a, sometimes things are a little bit off and they still become perfectly imperfect. That's such a great they, phrase. They just kind Did of. Did you work, come up with that right? yourself? I did just now when I was trying to think in my head, I'm going to throw this at you and you tell me if you can do it. Give me three great memories you had from the bowl season that did not involve the playoff. I gave you one already. Boy, the cheese at bowl is the putting one. me on the spot as if I remember having encyclopedic recall of all 38. Let uh, me start and then I'll go to you. Okay. Okay. So the cheese at bowl, which was like a, a Sharknado shared experience for a lot of football fans, right? Mm-hmm. You're watching all these, all these interceptions. It was such a train wreck that it became so compelling. Yeah, but it was a competitive train wreck, right? Yeah. So, so we're into that, right? Look, the Rose Bowl almost always delivers. I mean, it had, you know, the matchup of, of Urban Meyer last game against, uh, you know, Dwayne Haskins against that Washington defense, I thought was really, really was a fun, compelling matchup. You know, I think we get I think what, what you can get in a lot of these things are really good matchups that are just different than, you know, like I'm thinking about this week one. I don't think either one of these teams are top five teams, and I'm not sure they're top ten teams. They're close. Is Auburn with a great defensive line against Oregon with its great offensive line? I mean, you get regional matchups. I don't feel like people are going to getting fired up about you know division, you know outer division matchups in the NFL the way you do in college football. And I think that stuff that stuff is amplified. I, I mean, that stuff really matters. I can't wait to see what happens. When LSU goes to Texas, you know, like you think, you know, a little bit in the NFL. Yeah, you have free agency, you have draft picks, but it's like, OK, I think Texas is going to have a phenomenal offense. It's going to be interesting to see what Todd Orlando, who's a well-respected defense, is going to do with that defense. You know, the quarterback, they finished on a great year. I'm not sure how many people saw Texas taking it to Georgia and winning that bowl game before that happened. And now they have a lot of momentum. I mean, I'm excited to see that. I'm excited to see what Josh Gaddis is going to do as a first-time play caller with the Michigan offense. You know, there's just a lot of I'm, – I'm curious to see how Ohio State, now that it's Ryan Day's show, takes over. And here's Justin Fields, who I've heard, you know, fantastic things about. Now all of a sudden it's like, okay, what's he going to do in this offense? Replacing, you know, Dwayne Haskins, who was there for one – you know, played one great season. So – there's just a lot of stuff that I'm not saying it doesn't have anything to do with playoff because some of those things definitely could connect to the playoff, but you just don't know what you're getting until, until you open up the season and find out what's here. That's right. You wake up on Saturday mornings 
and you have no idea twelve out what twelve hours later where the college football landscape's gonna stand because one game can have such an impact on you know the entire country. So yeah, I, mean, I you get went, it. You you went to you went to week two or week three, I don't remember what it was, but you went to uh, college station for Clemson and you saw and Texas A and M wasn't a wasn't a playoff team. They were good. But you got to see a great atmosphere, right? You got yeah. To I mean, now, now that game play. did have a direct impact. Obviously, if Clemson had lost, that would have had a direct impact on the playoff race. But yeah, actually, I thought so. I pulled up this random. I just googled and I got an Athlon's list of the twenty-five best games in college football last year, and it just so happens that I was at number eleven on this list, and it definitely had no impact on the playoff race. And that would be Northwestern thirty-four, Nebraska thirty-one overtime on October thirty on October thirteenth, Northwestern. It goes on a 99-yard drive to send the game to overtime and wins. And at that time, that made Nebraska 0-6, which was, or 0-5 maybe, which was, you know, historic. So, again, completely off-the-grid game. I believe it was a 11 a.m. Central kick. You probably didn't, if you, unless you went to one of those two schools, you probably did not wake up planning to watch that whole game or the end of that game, and everybody got sucked into it. So that would be my answer to that question that we've now spent what 15 minutes on yes can we go to jacob from auburn's question mm-hmm. guys i've been listening to the podcast for years keep up the good work i have a three-part question apologies in advance i'm an auburn fan but i have a lot of family who went to fsu and quite frankly they don't know what to make of willie taggart five and seven in his first season was not ideal my questions how many wins do you think florida state will get this year I know you love late spring win-loss pred- predictions. Is Taggart at risk of losing his job if he repeats 2018? And do you think he will get it rolling again? Thank you. Stu? To answer the last part first, I don't have a lot of optimism that he's going to get it rolling again. I think that, and we've talked about this before in various search, sometimes a coach makes such a bad first impression that first year that it's really hard to dig out of. So I have no, you know, I don't think they'll be worse. I think they'll get better. Kendall Bryles was obviously a... A uh, very high-profile offensive coordinator hire who's had a lot of success where he's wherever he's been in the past. So it's conceivable that they will get that offense cranking. But when you look at the landscape right now, I mean, I guess I would ask you, who of these coaches, who do you have the most faith in? Manny Diaz at Miami, Dan Mullen at Florida, or Willie Taggart at Florida State? Manny Diaz is a big TBD because he's never been a head coach, right? Mm-hmm. So... Here's here's the one thing, and I, a lot of what you said, I, you know, I I'm not going to disagree with. The one thing I'll say is, the guys who tend to tend to have an awful first impression, who can't dig out of it, they're usually first time head coaches. He's not. You know, Willie Taggart struggled in his first year at other places and got it going. He did that at Western. He did that at at uh, South Florida. I mean, I think he's going to recruit well. I think it was a worse than expected first year. But look, Florida State was backsliding in a big way under Jimbo Fisher at the end. They were god-awful on the offensive line. I think they will get better. I don't know. I don't think it's going to be a two-and-out for him. I just don't think they're going to do that. I think that I could see them going winning seven or eight games. Just eyeballing the the schedule, seven and five maybe? I'm not going to fire him over that. No, and I think... You know, if you look at some of these schedules in the ACC, I mean, look at the Miami schedule it is really horrible. Miami right. has plays Florida in the opener, and then they may not play another top 25 team. I mean, well, it's, it's that the bad. the same way. So Florida State, 
Dorsey actually has a very intriguing opener this year in Jacksonville against Boise State. Mm-hmm. You know, my guess is like Florida State will be the Vegas favorite, but I kind of would think. I mean, Boise has to has to replace its starting quarterback and replace its starting running back. I mean, they still have some good players on the defense, but there's some, you know, they got to replace the defensive coordinator. Andy Avalos is now at Oregon. So, yeah, so. I would tend to favor Boise, but I haven't, can't say I've really studied that matchup. But then they play Louisiana Monroe, Virginia, Louisville, who's going to be awful, uh, NC State replacing Ryan Finley. Of course, Clemson is, I'll put that in the L column. That's an L, yeah. Wake, Syracuse, Miami, BC, and Alabama State before they get to Florida. Those are a bunch of teams that maybe they'll go six and six, maybe they'll go eight and four. I have no idea, but it's not like other than that Clemson game, there was a long stretch there where we were like, where I rattled off a bunch of teams, and I don't think you would have with any of them, you would have been like, oh, they're definitely gonna lose that game. Yeah, I mean the only teams I I could see that outside of Clemson that'll be ranked before Florida, I'd say maybe Miami because I could see Miami piling up wins. And I don't know about Syracuse or UVA. The rest is like ULM is struggling. Louisville, as you said, is really bad. I think NC State is a six or seven win team. Wake is decent, but I don't know if they're. I don't think they're a top twenty-five team. I don't think BC. You know, it's like I think they're they're a six win team. Alabama State's not good. I mean, I think they have a, a, a pretty good chance to get to seven or eight wins without being all that that impressive. So if they get to seven or eight wins, obviously his job is safe. But, you know, I think at Florida State, the question is, where are they going to be in, in year three and year four? This is one of the few programs in the country that can say it's national championship or bust. He is following two co- two national championship coaches. I think if it gets to year four and they go nine and three, at a lot of places they'd say, oh, okay, yeah, he's gotten steadily better, nine and three. I think at that place they'd say, run this guy out of town. We expect national championships here. Well, let's see where they're going to be. Remember, they're going to have a new AD. And that that is still playing out. So I don't know. I, I think I think he'll he'll get him better this year, and then we'll see. I mean, I, I don't think he's. We got to see what happens this year before we're talking about three and outs. I just think it's. I don't think we're at that point right now. I think it'd be different if Jimbo Fisher had gone eleven and one the previous year. But remember, they they were barely made a bowl the year before. Right. All right. This is an interesting one regarding the Notre Dame discussion. Well, it comes off of the Notre Dame discussion we had last week. And I was a little thrown off because this Notre Dame fan or alum's name is Matt. You did the almost, the almost exact same thing I did when I read this. Matt. I had to do a triple take. His name is Matt LaFortune. What are the odds that uh, your protege, Matt Fortuna, created a fake name <laughs> to ask this? Well, Matt, to be clear, is not a Notre Dame alum. He's a Penn State alum. But, but he covers Notre Dame a he lot. He covers Notre Dame a lot. We talk about Notre Dame a lot. And this is absolutely a question I could have seen him asking. And by the way, Matt brought this up recently. I feel like you throw his name out more than any other, just randomly, more than any other person on the athletic staff. And so now he's gotten yet another mention. Congrats on that. Bruce and Stu, as a Notre Dame alum, I became instantly defensive about your analysis of our NFL draft stock and how it reflects on quality of college teams. Manti Teo may have been a second rounder and isn't Pro Bowl caliber, but he was a legitimate Heisman finalist with seven interceptions on a team that rode close defensive struggles to the title game. I know, personally, that was my rationale at the time for putting him on my Heisman ballot. Drew Tranquil and, and uh, Tevon Coney both seem to be in that mold and will be hugely missed, even if they aren't exciting prospects. The 2014 Joe Schmidt as well. Is there a position that least correlates between college and pro performance? Linebacker seems to be contender, 
It's guys who have great instincts and positional awareness can rack up 100-plus tackles in a year, but don't have the combination of size and athleticism to dominate at the next level. See Tyler Matakiewicz and Josie Jewell as a couple other recent examples. It's a good question. I like this. You know, when I first read this name, the first name that came uh, came to my first person that came to my mind was Pat Fitzgerald. Yep. Terrific college player, really productive. I remember the first time I really spent any time with him. I went to, to Northwestern. It's probably like 10 years ago. And at the end of our conversation, we were sitting on the couch and I was like, so what happened with you in the NFL? Like, how are you like so productive in college? And he basically, you know, he talked about, I think, you know, he had a couple of tryouts, but basically it was kind of realized he just did not have the athleticism to to stick in the NFL. And this guy was a back-to-back Buckus Award winner and uh, was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame 10 years ago. And my recollection is he didn't even he he didn't even get on a he didn't even make it out of like the May minicamp. I think, you know, the athleticism piece is is um, is interesting to look at, especially when it comes to to linebackers, because there are guys and I, I I think there's something to what he says. I mean, I could also point out running back is really hard to uh, to figure out because you see guys, uh, a couple of guys who led the nation in rushing. Andre Williams from B.C., done nothing in the NFL. Kadeem Carey from Arizona did nothing in the NFL. Deontay Freeman, Dante Foreman, I'm sorry, from Texas, who is, he's been injured but has yet to do much. So you get guys who get into systems where they could be the bell cow and they just pile up stats. Chris Carson has been a really good NFL running back. And it wasn't like he was a he was amazing at Oklahoma State. So I think running back is a little bit tricky because of the systems. But I'll give you some names here. To me, the ultimate ultra productive was Superman as a college oh, linebacker. I know, I know who this is going to be. Yeah, there's kid, there's a boy in this house who's lucky. His first name isn't Scooby. <laughs> um, so let me read these stats because they're still they're still ridiculous. Led the nation in tackles with 163. 29 TFLs led the nation by a little, by quite a bit. 14 sacks, six forced fumbles, and that was on an Arizona team that went won 10 games. If there was a guy, you know, Manti Teo had seven interceptions, and that's that's really good. Manti Teo had very few TFLs, and it wasn't like his numbers were ridiculous. Scooby's numbers were friggin' ridiculous. He played in the NFL for, you know, on and off for about two years. T. Gray Scales, really productive big play guy for Indiana, fringe NFL guy. There's one coming up right now, Ben Burkhurvin. He was drafted, 176 tackles, not ideal size, really instinctive. But then there's the flip side of these guys. Kyle Van Noy, you remember him from BYU, 22 TFLs, really productive. Been a really good linebacker for the Patriots. How about Leighton Vander Esch? Super productive for Boise State. Cowboys love him. He's going to be a better NFL linebacker than Manti or some of these other guys we mentioned. And then the, the one who's probably the most counter to this argument, Luke Keekley. He almost led the nation in tackles three years in a row. It just put up insane numbers for BC, and he's been a fantastic linebacker in the NFL. So it's a crapshoot. I mean, that's all I got. I think in general he's right on. I mean, that's a position probably more than most where you can you – know, you just said, like Luke Keekley put up a million tackles, and he's a great NFL player – and then Pat Fitzgerald, Scooby Wright can also put up those same numbers and not even get a sniff because they're just they don't have the athleticism. So clearly, the there's athlete- something about playing that position that's much more about I don't know much more, but there's that involves a lot more kind of instincts and and smarts than maybe 
playing cornerback where I got to think if you're not a good athlete, it's hard to compensate for that. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of outliers. Brandon Spikes, you remember him at Florida? I mean, he was, he was slow as could be when he went to the combine. He, he, he barely cracked five, one in the 40, didn't vertical jump even at 30 inches. And he's had a pretty long NFL career. I mean, I, I don't know if he's still playing. I think he probably lasted six or seven years and, you know, had some decent seasons with the Patriots. So, I, you know, it's hard for me to, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, I'll say that. Yeah, it, 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 and we both had the same reaction to it, and, and I'm glad he brought it up. Do you want to read this next one? This is from Chris in Moultrie, Georgia. I love the show and absolutely love the athletic. Keep up the great work you guys do for us crazy college football fans. Thank you, Chris. Wanted to ask you guys a question for the mailbag about Kirby Smart and Lincoln Riley. I've now seen two coaches' lists that had Riley above Kirby Smart, one being Bruce's list and another on 247 Sports. Could you all explain the reason for this? When I read or heard someone on a podcast explain why Kirby isn't higher, it literally makes no sense to me. What exactly has Lincoln done to warrant a higher ranking when his only accomplishments has been Big 12 titles? He's never been in the national title game. By the way, Kirby has been to one. He got blown out by Bama, didn't just lose. He got beat so bad in the first half, I thought the NCAA was going to make them do a running clock. And unlike Lincoln, Kirby actually has won a playoff game against, oh, by the way, Oklahoma in what was considered an ultimate choke job by Lincoln, Riley, and the Sooners. Before I answer, Stu, do you want to weigh in? I think I had them right back-to-back, and I don't, I don't know that uh, I got as worked up about it as Chris did. I think it's interesting that, and I've noticed this more and more this offseason, Georgia fans are, are all in on Kirby. Kirby, in their mind, he has already established himself as one of the premier coaches in the country, and there's no debating it. And I think in the rest of the country, it's, uh, you know, great second season, great recruiter. Nobody can dispute that. He is tearing it up as a recruiter. But with a jury still a little bit out about whether he's a, and no, Georgia fans, there's no argument to be had. This guy is very adamant about that. For me, I think the reason I had Lincoln Riley one spot higher was the two Heisman winners, which is just an insane accomplishment to have, to produce the Heisman winning quarterback in back-to-back years, neither of whom came up in your system from high school. That was the difference maker, but it wasn't, I wasn't really, uh, I could have gone the other direction just as easily. For me, I, I think the, I think Kirby's one of the best coaches in college football. Why I think Lincoln had him higher and a little bit higher, and maybe I'm a little more in the jury is still out on Kirby. Kirby's 32 and 10. He had an okay first year. Lincoln didn't have an, Lincoln's had two years. They've both been playoff seasons and hot, produced Heisman Trophy winners. I mean, he went eight and five and four and four in the uh, conference. The other thing is they've had some, they've gotten drilled pretty much every year. You know, you look at, at what's happened. Uh, they got drilled. They, I think they lost twice by at least two touchdowns in his first year. And then in 2017, got blown out by Auburn. In 2018, got blown out by LSU. You know, I get it. They have played Oklahoma really close. But if you look also against teams that were ranked in the top 15, Kirby Smart's record is 5-7. and seven. And teams ranked in the top 15, Lincoln Riley's 6-2. and two. Yeah, um, you did your research coming into this. I did. I couldn't go to sleep last night when you sent this email. It's like I had a bunch of stuff to add. But the well, other when thing you put it is, that way, it's a no-brainer. Well, the other thing is, you know, for what Chris says, and I, I know the score can be misleading, 
But that score ended up 45-34. It was an 11-point game, you know, late in the second half, right? So, and, you know, I don't want to – I don't know how much of this is an excuse, but they were outgunned by 50 yards, and Oklahoma was playing without Kyler Murray's best weapon was basically a non-factor, Marquise Brown. So, I don't know. I you mean, also find it a little amusing that he is describing – Georgia losing, I mean, Oklahoma losing the Rose Bowl to be what, the ultimate choke job when the guy that he's advocating for so heavily, I mean, fake. did any coach in the country have a bigger choke job in a game last year than Kirby had with that fake punt? No, I mean, that's a that's a fair point. I mean, look, I think I think he's a really, really good coach. What I think gets, gets tricky is you want to make your case, but you don't want to, like, by doing it, you end up in, in, you know, maybe on it, not inadvertently, but, you know, kind of bashing the other guy in the process. I think they're I think, both great coaches. I think one of the, I think the two biggest things that Kirby Smart has, you know, chips right now in his pocket, neither one is directly related to winning games. The first one is he has collected a lot of five stars because he has recruited extremely well. He's won a lot of high profile, big battles. And I think, you know, that's not insignificant. That should pay off, you know, even more in the next couple of years. The other part, and this is a little bit, I don't want to make, you know, I'm tempted not to make this comparison, but Charlie Weiss got a absolute fortune from Notre Dame, not because he won anything. It's because he almost beat USC and had them on the ropes. I think the biggest thing that for Kirby Smart and a lot of people have gone to bat for them, you know, in terms of a playoff spot is because they went toe to toe with Alabama. They didn't win those games, but they went toe to toe with them. Correct. So, and look, I mean, if, if Tua doesn't complete that pass, uh, the second and 26 pass, and Georgia holds on to win that game, this isn't even a conversation. He'd be considered one of the best coaches in the country. He would certainly not be behind Lincoln Riley. That's the tough part of college football, right? Hey, if Mark Richt has something different with Aaron Murray in the SEC title game, does he have a national title then? You know, Mark Richt's legacy, imagine if Mark Richt had coached when there was a playoff. He had several teams that didn't crack the top two but were right there and would have been in the mix for the other two playoff spots. Right now, Chris is like, I hate these guys. I'm, I'm unsubscribing. <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have gone into, you know, gone there. Next question, another one I liked. David Eisen. I enjoyed your yes. discussion about surprisingly high NFL draft pick Daniel Jones, whom everybody knows was a walk-on at Duke. That brings to mind this question. Who is on your respective Mount Rushmore's of former college walk-ons? I assume Clay Matthews makes the list. Clay Matthews would make the list if we were talking about guys who are in the NFL. If I'm talking about guys in college, there's one for sure that's got to be on there, and that's Baker Mayfield. If I'm going with Baker and then three other guys, so I had four. I had the ones I'm Brandon Burlesworth, who is an L S C C lineman, who the award is named for from his days at Arkansas. I think there was a movie made about him. I mean, I think he would have to be on there. And then I can only take one of the Wisconsin guys. I'm not going to take J.J. Watt. I'm going to take Jimmy Leonard. And then my fourth one will be Adam Archuleta from Arizona State. So... Yeah, I hadn't thought about the fact that both Leonard and Watt JJ were walk-ons. Yeah. I mean, Watt would definitely be on mine. Baker Mayfield would be on mine. Hunter Renfro would be on mine. Uh, that guy yeah. caught the game-winning catch in a national championship game and and just basically shredded Alabama in back-to-back national championship games. So I know his like statistics over the course of his career aren't well, aren't uh, 
like Bolitnikov worthy, and he certainly didn't get drafted nearly as high as, as some of the other guys were talking about, but just for his impact in those national championship games, he's got to be on there. And uh, so who do I have? Baker, I have J.J. I mean, is it okay if I put two Wisconsin guys on there? Because I think Jim Leonard's got to be on there as well. Yeah, I had Jim Leonard on mine. I was not I did, I was not going to put two on there, so that's why I, I picked Leonard over J.J. Watt, who transferred in there, but that's fine. Do you think they should build, if they're going to build this actual Mount Rushmore walk-on, should they build it in Madison? They should build it in Madison. Oh, that you know who's going to be really offended? I, I shouldn't have said that. It's got to be in Lincoln, Nebraska, right? The 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 program that that prides itself on its walk on program. Well, let's let's see. Uh, you know who who I thought of, and I, maybe this is a personal bias, but I thought of Owen Schmidt, mm-hmm. the uh, folk hero fullback at West Virginia. There was another name I had thought of. Oh, you know who I'm glad you didn't bring up, and I'm going to kick myself for just introducing this name, Rudy. I mean, that would have been like I would if I were listening and we said that I would have turned off the podcast. I'm with you. Okay. Anybody else we've forgotten? I'm sure there are. Pro, like I Sam, mean, Santana Moss came to Miami as a walk-on. He was a track guy when they were trying to figure out scholarships. I mean, he had obviously a great career. By by any chance, when you were doing your research about Kirby Smart and Lincoln Riley's records against top 15 teams, did you happen to like find any sort of authoritative list of college football walk-ons? Because I don't necessarily know all of them off the top of my head. I didn't. I mean, I actually looked this up because I didn't. Re- I didn't remember that Adam Archuleta had started out there as a uh, as as a walk on at ASU. But you know, there's a handful of guys. You're like, wait a minute, that guy. Like, there was a list that came up with Antonio Brown from you know Central Michigan, and I had written I had written about him, and I had done done a lot of research on him for the slot receiver story I did a few you know a few weeks back. But, you know, he would certainly be on there just because of, you know, we're talking about a guy who's probably going to go to the Hall of Fame for what he's done. So, um, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, talking to guys on the, I talked to his position coach who was with him in the Mac, I didn't realize he came in as a, uh, as a walk-on. Okay, just while we were talking, I pulled up a Bleacher Report, top 25 walk-ons of the BCS era. I'm going to toss out a couple names, let me know if you want to dislodge anybody from your Mount Rushmore. Okay. Colt Brennan? No. Mike Haas? No, from Oregon State? No. Yeah. I had to think for a second about that one. No. It's Mike Haas, by the way, I think. That's what I said. Uh, there you called him Mike Haas. You made him Keith Jackson. Levi Jones, Arizona State? No. That's about it. I mean, I'm not going to rattle off all 25. Those are the ones that I seem to have the best case. So I think we're good, but somebody out there is going to remind us of... Somebody really obvious that we forgot, and uh, we will mention that next week. So again, as always, send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. It is now peak off-season. We're at that part of the year where you are definitely having to find excuses You guys content. are driving the show. You guys are driving the show. You're not just driving Stu's written content now. You are driving the whole deal of Stu Mandel, Inc. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily put it that way, but... You know, this is a good time of the year for us to do longer extended mailbag sections because it's not like we have a whole bunch of breaking news to discuss at the beginning. All right, we'll see you guys next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music 
on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB and subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over here.